Good morning, church. Great to see you. Trust you're well. Years ago, a mentor of mine used this phrase in my presence, which I have remembered. He said, you'll do the best with your life. You will do the best with your life if you discover the will of God for your generation and then fling yourself into it. You'll do the best with your life if you discover what in the world God is doing and then give yourself to those things. Most Christians in North America do not know what in the world God is doing. Most pastors, even more disappointingly, most pastors in America do not know what in the world God is doing. But it behooves us as the people of faith, if we are going to be intentionally and strategically engaged in fulfilling the Great Commission to go into all the world and make disciples for Jesus Christ, it behooves us to know what in the world God is doing. Four questions now, the next couple of weeks we want to answer. Number one, what in the world is God doing? Number two, where is he doing it? Number three, who is yet to be reached? And number four, how can we be involved? I'm really excited for you because if you'll give, give attention in the next couple of weeks, you will know more about what in the world God is doing, where he's doing it, than 99% of Christians, you know, and that's not good generally speaking, but that's good for you and that's good for us because it's right for us to know if we're going to be intentionally and strategically engaged in the Great Commission, the, the big mandate that God gave us to make disciples for Jesus Christ, then these are things that we need to know. I'm going to use as our reference this morning the book of Romans, I'm going to read from Romans chapter 1, I'm going to read the first eight verses and then verses 15 through 17. And as I read this reference today, as the Apostle Paul is addressing the church at Rome, he's talking to Gentile Christians. These are not Jews now, these are Gentile Christians in Rome, and we are essentially all Gentile Christians too. And so notice your place in this, in this passage and how the gospel has been given not only to the Jewish people, but also to us, the Gentiles. So that's encouraging. All right, Romans chapter 1, and as you're able, I invite you to stand to hear God's word. I'll begin at verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles, now there we are, all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. Now to verse 15. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith, from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. May God inspire us today through these important words. You may be seated. Thank you. Let me begin with this story. 
In April of 1739, 1739, John Wesley, our father in the Methodist movement, Father John, was preaching in the upstairs room in London, uh, and about halfway into his sermon, the supporting post which held up the floor of the room collapsed under the sheer weight of the number of people who had gathered to hear Wesley. Wesley remarked in his journal that the supporting post fell with a great noise. Now, obviously, this was before uh, building codes and capacity codes and that sort of thing. So the second floor, second-story room, filled with people, and the undergirding beam that supported that, that floor cracked and broke. Wesley remarked in his journal that the floor sunk, but it didn't cave in. And to Wesley's own amazement, everyone settled back down, and he was able to finish preaching. Now, you may find that kind of humorous. I find it a little disappointing because I know full well if the, if the floor cracked in here, you'd all be out of here. I'd be finishing this by myself. <laughs> I know how it would go. Here's my question for us. What do we do when it seems like the very floor under our feet is giving way? Many of the traditional props and supports which have long given stability to the world with a Judeo-Christian worldview have fallen away with a great crash. Where, what are we to do? How do we live in a time of disequilibrium, of uncertainty, and of such dramatic change? Never in history has the church undergone such dramatic growth globally and change so quickly. William Carey was a great missionary to India, and when he went to India in 1793, 99% of all Christians in the world were white and lived in the Western world. Today, the vast majority of Christians live outside the Western world. We are witnessing multiple centers of Christian vibrancy, even as we see the Western world reemerging as the world's fastest growing mission field. Whereas before we were the mission sending source of the world, the center of Christian vibrancy, now the Western world, North America included, is actually becoming a mission field. And we are the home now to some of the world's fastest growing resistant people groups. In contrast, all of the top most gospel receptive people groups in the world are found in either India or China. We live in an upside down world. Now, let me give you some examples of that. Christianity Today, just a couple of years ago, reported that 85% of the members of Yale University's Campus Crusade for Christ, and we have a lot of Campus Crusade crew folks who associate with Union Chapel. A couple of years ago, Christianity Today reported that Yale University's crew, 85% of the participants and crew at Yale are Asian, whereas the university's Buddhist meditation meetings are almost exclusively attended by whites. It's a crazy world. The World Christian Encyclopedia records that more Anglican Christians worship in Nigeria in any given week than all the Episcopal and Anglican churches of Europe and North America combined. More Anglicans and Episcopalians in Nigeria than Western Europe and North America. An examination of world Christian trends reveals that there are now more evangelical Christians in Nepal than there are in Spain. It's a crazy world. The historic William Carey Memorial Church, I just mentioned William Carey, great missionary to India, uh, 
two centuries ago, William Carey, uh, a memorial church dedicated in his in honor in, in Leicester, England, is now, today, 2013, a Hindu temple. While the church in India, the traditional home of Hinduism, sends out over 41,000 cross-cultural missionaries. Things are upside down. China can now boast of the fastest-growing church in the world with an estimated 16,500 new converts to Christianity every day in China. Amazing. Africa, once called the graveyard of missionaries, can now boast of the fastest-growing church for any continent as a whole, 24,000 new converts to Christianity every day on the continent of Africa. Think of it in these terms. The most representative Christian in 1909, 1909 was a 47-year-old British male. The most representative Christian in 2013 is a 24-year-old Nigerian woman. The world has shifted. The support post upon which was written, you are the center of the Christian universe, has collapsed. And we have to regain our footing in this new world we inhabit and think afresh about what this means for us in North America. And just so you know, none of these developments were predicted even 50 years ago. I was asked to serve on a panel asking the question, why are we losing so many young adults from our churches in North America? I was at a at the uh, annual board meeting of Asbury Seminary in Orlando last week, and I sat on this panel, and my initial comments in that setting was that 30 years ago when I began pastoral ministry, I would have never predicted that the world, our culture in particular, is the way it is, and the church would be in a diminished role that it is. Never in a million years would I have predicted the world as it is with regard to culture and church in the culture. In just 30 years upheaval, just enormous shifts and change, paradigm shifts, epic changes historically around the, around the globe. It's an amazing time to be alive. The floor is creaking beneath our feet. So the question is, what does that mean here for us at Union Chapel and in the 21st century? I want to make three observations this morning. Remember the four questions. What in the world is God doing? Where is he doing it? Who is yet to be reached? How can we be involved? Number one, the gospel that we preach, the gospel we embrace, is a gospel of hope. It's a gospel of hope. Never has the gospel, the good news, been so relevant, so compelling to so many people around the world. And the first way that we can understand this afresh is the profound translatability of the Christian message. Let me explain. Christianity is the only world religion whose primary original Language, the source documents of the New Testament, for example. When Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John sat down, the Apostle Paul sat down and, and wrote originally, first put pen to paper, wrote the New Testament. They wrote the New Testament in Koine Greek. Jesus did not go around talking in Koine Greek. He, he spoke Aramaic. The vast majority of the words that Jesus used were in Aramaic, and yet the original authors of what he said coined those, print, penned those comments in Koine Greek. Now, this is, this is unique among world religions. Follow me. Muhammad spoke in Arabic, and the Quran is in Arabic. The Brahmin priests in India spoke Sanskrit, and the Vedas and the other philosophical writings that undergird the philosophy of Hinduism are in Sanskrit. However, in the New Testament, Jesus spoke, as I mentioned, primarily in Aramaic, but the primary documents which record those sayings are in Greek. Now, this makes a vitally important 
theological statement which so dramatically contrasts, for example, with Muslims who maintain that the Quran is untranslatable and the word of Allah can be conveyed truly and fully only in Arabic. In contrast, at the very outset of the Christian message, the translatability of the gospel is actually enhanced. It's, 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 it's spotlighted. It's enshrined in its primary source documents. And so you would under-realize this point if you only see it as a necessary green light to translate the Bible into any known language, which has been the custom of the Christian church for 2,000 years. We find a people group who has a distinct language, and we find some smart people who learn that language and translate the Bible into their language so that they have a copy of the Bible. And this translatability is a linguistic translatability, and it's a wonderful thing. And it is, of course, that that point, but it is even more profound in the implication of the translatability of the gospel to all cultures. Indeed, this is the larger point and the reason why the New Testament is not in Aramaic. In the book of Acts, we, we're witnessing a massive cultural transition between a church which is predominantly Jewish in its historical and cultural context. All the original disciples, these boys were Jews, and they were all in. But now the Gentiles are starting to get wind of the gospel and the good news of Jesus. And this begins in Cornelius' house, and subsequently the, 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 the new converts in Rome are beginning to ask the question, wait, do we have to be circumcised first and adhere to the Jewish customs before we become believers in Christ? And so they held in Acts 15, we have the record there of the Jerusalem Council, one of the most important historical meetings in all of human history. And the boys got together, as reported in Acts 15, and asked the question, do we first require people to adhere to the Jewish customs before we allow them to be part of the Christian movement? And the answer was no. If you're Jewish, you can still be as Jewish as you want to be and embrace Jesus at the same time. But those of you who are not Jewish by culture or tradition or language or anything else or practice... It's not a restriction on you. You can be free as a Gentile to practice the faith of Christianity. And this is good news because that makes it possible for all of us to be here right now. So the good news is for sharing. The good news is for everyone. The good news is not exclusive. The good news is inclusive. Every tribe, every people, every language, every culture is included. We've all been the recipients of this glorious good news. And so we have a gospel of hope because it's for everyone. Let me say second of all, the gospel that we preach is a global gospel. My earlier point, I noted that many of us still see the West as the Christian center of the world, even though the vast majority of Christians in the world today now live in places other than the Western world. If you see a picture of the globe and imagine the equator going around the globe, in the last 50 years, the, the, the majority, the aggregate sum total of all Christians in the world have shifted proportionately from the northern half of the globe, northern hemisphere, to the southern hemisphere. So now there are more Christians living in the southern hemisphere, uh, Africa, South America, Latin America, Asia, China, more, more Christians... <laughs> in the southern hemisphere than in the northern hemisphere. In fact, the southern hemisphere church now is actually seeing the northern hemisphere world as the primary mission field of the world. We've got to send missionaries to North America. It's a fascinating, fascinating dynamic. 
Now, sometimes this has caused Westerners, especially white European descent Americans, to feel like God is moving everywhere else, but he's not moving here. And the shifting center of Christian gravity has, has moved beyond us, and somehow we're left out, we're left behind. And we feel diminished or punished or guilty. You know, I guess we had our chance, we blew it. But I want to just remind you, and I want you to hear this carefully, there is a vital difference, a distinction between a post-Western Christianity and a post-Christian West. While the, while the aggregate number of Christians have shifted to the major world churches in the Southern Hemisphere, does not mean that God has left us and that we don't have a role to play. Far from being left behind, God is shaking us free, I think, from our churchy worldview, which has been provoke, uh, uh, prov provincial and parochial in many instances, equating Christianity with our culture and our politics and all of those kinds of things that has watered down and diluted the effectiveness of the gospel in our culture. Christians in America have tended to see Christianity as the cultural reality and the, and, and the center of gravitational pull, but that's no longer true. We live in a post-Christian culture, and the sooner we come to terms with that, the better. Christians and our values and our, and our convictions have been pushed to the margins of our culture, and that's, that's life. But listen, rather than throwing up our hands and saying, oh, we've lost it all and there's no hope for us, we need to just realize that, look, the church has been pushed to the margins and has, has lived on the margins for most of the 2,000 years of its existence. It's not a new place or a new role for Christians living on the margins. It just means that we need to reclaim our prophetic edge and to claim once again the wonderful hope that we find in Jesus Christ and continue to live authentically and, and give a compelling verbal witness and testimony to this gospel. That's where we are. Let me give you another illustration. In the 19th century, God commanded us to Christianize Africa. Africa is this dark continent, needs help. Go tell them about Jesus. And so men and women of all stripes went to Africa and began to preach the gospel. Well, guess what? It took. It's amazing. The remarkable growth of the church on the continent of Africa in the last hundred years from about 3% Christian to, to almost 45% Christianized, the continent of Africa. Hundreds of millions of people have come to faith. I just reported a moment ago that 24,000 people per day are coming to faith in Christ in Africa. So in the 19th century, God commanded us to Christianize Africa. In the 21st century, he may very well be calling us to Africanize Christianity. A hundred years ago, we went to Africa and said, here's the hope of the gospel. A hundred years later, Africans are coming to America and say, this is how you do it. Heads up. This is how it works. Yeah, praise God. In his sovereignty, God may have permitted the decline of Western Christianity in order to shake us free from the weakened, domesticated version which has become the standard bearer of Christianity. Today, the West is rediscovering the vibrancy of historic, apostolic, orthodox Christianity with all of its prophetic surprises and anointed vibrancies. Let me give you some signs of this. Here's the first sign. I'm going to put this on the screen so you can absorb it better. The ethnic diversity of the global church is moving rapidly into North America. Global Christianity is not just about Africans and Koreans and Chinese and Brazilians and Indians and a host of others over there somewhere. But these are the new realities in our own towns and cities. The largest churches, listen, 
The largest churches in Western Europe are pastored by African Christians. The fastest growing churches in North America are ethnic churches. Global Christianity is actually the greatest force for renewal in North America. The hope for North America is the global church, the Southern Hemisphere church. So Brazilians and Africans and Nigerians and Chinese and Asians are coming to America to evangelize us pitiful people. Because we need it. The whole, the whole church bringing the whole gospel to the whole world. That was okay with us when we were the center of Christian vibrancy, but now that we're not, now that we're the recipients of that, of that mantra, the whole gospel for the whole world. And so Christians are coming. John Wesley said, the world is my parish. Today we could easily say the world is in my parish. Because folks are coming, immigrants are coming to the United States. Last weekend when Flod Mossery was here and did such a beautiful job for us, on Saturday night, Beth and I took him out for dinner. We went into a local restaurant. We had to wait a few minutes for a table. And while we were waiting, there was a cluster of six Arab women, all noticeable because of their, because of their wardrobe and their demeanor. And Fouad, and one of them holding a little baby, Fouad immediately jumped into the middle of this group, found out that they're all either students at Ball State or the wives of students at Ball State, and how long they've been here and where they're from and, and all of that, and struck up a meaningful conversation with them. Did you know that there's, a, there's nearly 1,000 international students at Ball State University living in Muncie, Indiana? There's, a, there's an office of international studies Students, you can go there and invite some of these, these international students to your home for Thanksgiving. They have no place to go. They, they might live here four, five, six years, and not one Christian American living in Muncie will invite them to their home and show them hospitality, radical hospitality, and love on, on a bit. And if an opportunity presents itself to share your hope found in Christ. Something to think about. Something to think about. Today, if Dorothy in the wonderful book and movie, The Wizard of Oz, had left 1934 Kansas, and rather than being plopped down in, in the land of Oz, she'd been plopped back down in Kansas in 2013, she might have turned to Toto and said, we're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> Demographic has changed. Here's a second sign. We must recognize the unique place we are in as Christians in the 21st century. See, once... What was a, a vital center of Christian vitality later has languished while the center of the world Christian movement has constantly moved. Now follow this. We can trace the shifting center of Christian vibrancy over the last 2,000 years. We know that the vibrant church of Jesus Christ was first located in Jerusalem. I mean, we get that. But it went from Jerusalem and then to Rome and then to Alexandria and then to Constantinople and then to Western Europe and then you could argue to the, to the United States. The shifting of Christianity to a new center of cultural vibrancy is not a new thing. It's shifted for 2,000 years, and we can track that shifting. What is new today for the first time in history is that we are not seeing the emergence of a single new center of Christian vibrancy. Instead, we are witnessing the simultaneous emergence of multiple centers of vibrancy in China, in India, in Korea, in Brazil, and here in the United States. It's an amazing phenomenon. 
Now, having said that, the United States will continue to be one of those centers of vitality. Even as late as the year 2050, as we project the trends, the United States will still have more Christians than any other country. However, we will be closely followed by China and Asia and Brazil, Latin America. We are experiencing in our day, in our time, the dawn of a truly global Christian movement. More indigenous Christians firmly rooted in more places than at any time in the history of the world. This is truly an historic and thrilling time to be alive as a Christian in our world. We are living in the days that the saints of old have prayed for. We are living in the days that I think the angels have longed to see. This is a time when we were trusting this wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ to go to the whole world, and we are seeing it unfold before our eyes. It is an amazing time to be alive and an awesome opportunity before us. Thrilling. Here's a third sign. We must recognize our unique role in the global work. The sum total of Christian believers has moved away from the West to the Southern Hemisphere. We get it. However, this says nothing about the center of gravity for financial resources for global Christian work. It says nothing about the center of gravity for graduate level theological education. Who's going to train the next, the next primary leaders of the global church? It says nothing about the center of gravity for the availability of Christian books. Think about those things alone. Financial support, Christian literature, uh, graduate level theological training. More Christians globally praise God in Spanish than in other, any other language, including English. However, there are far more books about Christianity written in English than in any other language. The center of gravity for graduate level theological education will remain in North America for the foreseeable future. This is a wonderful opportunity for us to be part of what God is doing in the greater world. Let me just uh, get to the last thought. We live in a world of Google, so let's put the gospel in there. The gospel in a world of Google. We must reaffirm the seriousness of our task. We must reaffirm the seriousness of our task. We need to reaffirm serious reflection in a world of Twitter. Julius Caesar famously said in the wake of his stunning victory in the East, you remember this, Vini, Vidi, Vici, I came, I saw, I conquered. That was uh, the mantra, the summarizing motto of the ancient world, especially the confident, unbridled triumphalism of the Roman era. If their motto was, I came, I saw, I conquered, what would be the 21st century North American counterpart, the equivalent of, I came, I saw, I conquered? I think the 21st century counterpart might be, I came, I saw, I twittered. <laughs> I came, I saw, I tweeted. Think about it. Twitter only allows 140 characters. Everything must be said in 140 letters or you can't say it. And I just want to submit that. What an apt metaphor for our day. We live in a reduced world, a reductionistic world. We've just been boiled down with little time for serious reflection. And it seems for serious commitments. We live in a world which is inundated with information, most of which is trivial. We live in a day which avoids radically avoid serious long-term reflection, serious long-term devotion, serious long-term commitments, serious long-term relationships. But God is calling us to remember the kind of robust and muscular and apostolic Christianity which is required to face the challenges of our day. 
It will not be quick and it won't be easy. And you already know without me telling you that it won't be cheap. Because anytime the kingdom of God advances, someone has to pay the price for it to advance. Someone has to pray. Someone has to give. Someone has to serve. Someone has to go. It will take sacrifice and commitment, prayers and presence and gifts and service. One of my jobs as a leader in the church is to define reality. That's the job of any leader of any organization. Define reality. What is the truth? What is reality? So that we can respond to what is true. And I, and I, I will not end this message on a downer, but I need you to know what, what reality is. North America is on the verge of the most stunning collapse of churches in the history of our country. A week and a half ago, I was with Bishop Mike Coiner, who is the Episcopal leader of Indiana for the United Methodist Church. I was with him and the pastors of the largest United Methodist churches in Indiana. There was about a dozen of us in the room. And with a very sober tone, Bishop Mike asked us to reflect on the precipitous decline in the general church in Indiana and the Methodist church and most of America. And he asked us this question, again, with, with great sobriety. He said, what do you recommend we do to reverse these trends? And it's a very sober question that all of us have been trying to wrestle with. He had an outside consultation firm develop a matrix of understanding so that we can see what the trends are in the United Methodist churches in Indiana, just in Indiana. What the bishop uncovered was a number of alarming trends. For example, 54% of all the United Methodist churches in Indiana have not received one person by profession of faith in Jesus Christ in the last five years. Not one person. More than half of our churches haven't, haven't offered Christ in a meaningful, compelling way to one person. It's stunning. But you do understand that is understandable that it is to ask the question, what can we do to reverse the trend in our institution? It's the wrong question. And in fact, to frame the question that way dooms us to failure. Because the way to renewal and revival in the life of the church is not to ask the question, how can we revive the institution? The right question to ask is, are we faithful to the mission that God has mandated? Do we have an appreciation for who Jesus Christ is and are we faithful to offer him and make disciples in Jesus' name? Because if we're making disciples for Jesus Christ, then it stands to reason that the church will be revitalized and the world will be transformed. That's the way it works. But unless and until we refocus on who Jesus is and why he's vitally important to the world and to make disciples in his name, then the church will continue to flounder. And I predict that it will. Now, having said that, let me just remind you that the church of Jesus Christ is indestructible. The church of Jesus Christ is indestructible, and he is preparing his bride. And one day he will present himself with a bride that is spotless and blameless. I promise you, when we get on the shores of eternity, the bride of Christ, the church, the people of God are going to be in really, really fine shape. I promise you that. 
In the meantime, listen, the various organizational manifestations of the church are very destructible. The United Methodist Church, for example, the, the Presbyterian Church USA, various uh, iterations of the Lutheran denomination, etc., 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 were just the first to set the pace, but now there are hundreds of others on their way, some of them today's mega churches. We are just one generation away from a mega collapse, and it's going to happen. Now, having said that, nevertheless, and please hear me, North America is also simultaneously moving into one of the most dynamic phases of fresh church planting in our history. The last time a generation of Americans will have seen the pace of fresh church planting, which you will see in your lifetime, will have been the days of Francis Asbury, who was the famous circuit writer, Methodist preacher of the frontier days of America that led to a movement that saw the planting of two churches every day that lasted for decades. At the end of the Civil War in the United States in the late 1860s, one out of every four Americans were Methodists because of this phenomenal church planting movement, this passion to fulfill the mission of Jesus Christ, to make disciples. Now, however, that was then. This is now. In this new phase, we will increasingly be occupying the margins, not the center of the culture. That means we have to reclaim our prophetic role. We also have to reclaim our role as evangelists and church planters, not just pew sitters and your typical pastor trying to climb the denominational ladder to get to the next bigger, better. The culture no longer supports our beliefs, our convictions, and our values. Therefore, we have to take a different approach. Many of you are traditionalists and older. You're the elders among us. And you are to be respected and admired and listened to. One of, one of our ranks as elders recently invited me and many others to join a new movement within the Wesleyan Church. Dr. Maxie Dunham has pastored large churches, was editor of the Daily Devotional, The Upper Room. Some of you have used The Upper Room as a daily devotional in your life. He was the editor of that publication for many years. He served as president of Asbury Seminary. And I want to put a, a statement that is in part, part, a part of his statement to numbers of us calling us to a certain cause. I want to put it on the screen so you can have the full benefit. And again, Dr. Dunham is in his 70s. We've been talking about renewal of the church for 40 years with little effect. Our new pursuit is revival. Admittedly, it should have been our pursuit all along. We are believing God for a return to our doctrinal standards and sustaining an emphasis on church planting, kingdom mission, and evangelism. Have an ear for that? Church, do you have an ear for that kind of call? That's the call in the world in which we live. What in the world is God doing? Where is he doing it? Who is yet to be reached? How can we be involved? Friends, these are the days of Perpetua, of Carthage. Some of you are hearing that name for the first time in your life. Perpetua was a young woman who came to faith in Jesus Christ in the Roman era, in the first century, and she was arrested and tried and sentenced to die in the Roman arena, the Colosseum. Perpetua, this young woman, had recently given birth, and she literally carried her newborn child into the arena. And when given one final opportunity to denounce her faith in Christ and to embrace the pagan gods of her culture, she, she forthrightly refused. They released the lions, and Perpetua, with her nursing baby, 
perished in the Colosseum. And it was one of the first moments that gave witness to Rome and the rest of the world that these Christians are not going to be easily dissuaded. These are the days of Athanasius, the great Alexandrian bishop who saw the whole church embracing a, a gross heresy, impugning the divinity of Christ, and he stood up for God's truth. Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world. Some of us will need to stand up and say lovingly to the church, to the denominational church, look, you got it wrong. You forgot who Jesus is. Let's go back to the text. Let's embrace afresh and anew what God has said about his son, and let's make authentic followers of Jesus. These are the days of Augustine. The whole empire was collapsing. Rome was sacked, and somebody has to write the city of God, this classic treatise from Augustine. Well, someone has to write the city of God for our day, and perhaps someone within the sound of my voice this weekend will sit down, and God will call you to write the city of God to lead the way to a new generation to find Jesus. These are the days of Martin Luther, when the church had lost its way, lost its prophetic voice. In our day, the church has been swept down the stream of uncritical populism and positive thinking and niceness. And listen to me carefully. This new generation can't be reached that way. This new generation can't be reached if we, if we, if we tamper with the truth. We have to be forthright and unconditional in our love to lead a, a new generation. But the culture in which we live in the 40s and 50s, some of you grew up in the 40s and 50s, this is what cultural said, culture said in North America. Culture said, you know right from wrong, now go do what's right. You know, you know right, you know what's wrong, now go do what's right. Then we transitioned into the 60s and 70s, and some of us came of age in those decades. And the culture changed, and the cultural voice said something like this, look, I'm part of a revolution, and I don't care what you think. I'm going to do whatever I want. And now we've come to the 2000s, and this is what culture is saying. I will live any way I please, and I expect you to approve and endorse my choices. Because if you don't approve and endorse my choices, then I will impugn you. I will call you names. I will persecute you. I will push you even further to the margins of society. Luther had the courage to wade out against the current and declare, here I stand, I can do no other. May God give us that kind of prophetic courage. These are the days of John Wesley, who preached himself out of every pulpit in England. We think that John Wesley was some proper, uh, proper ordinan who, who followed all the rules. Listen, he broke all the rules. The Anglican church gave him the left foot of fellowship. He wasn't welcome to preach in any of the churches. They wouldn't let him preach in the pulpits of England. That's when Wesley said, well, if you won't let me preach in the, in the churches, I'll just make the world my parish. One of his first sermons, he climbed up on his, his father's tombstone right outside of the door of the Epworth Parish Church and stood on his father's tombstone and preached the gospel. Here at Union Chapel, we are on a mission because we have lifted up our eyes to the harvest, and it's a global harvest. There's a big world out there, and a big God is doing big things, and we want to be part of it. In the midst of the Twitterization of our sacred work, God will raise up men and women who are prepared to move beyond quick and cheap and easy. 
This isn't something you and I can orchestrate. It takes a renewed discovery of the call of God to do something better, the call of God to be better readers of the Holy Scriptures, better reflectors on the true nature of worship, better proclaimers of the eternal gospel. We are those who have been called and summoned into the presence of the risen Christ and called into his service. We've been delivered out of this world and then sent right back into it to make a difference in his name. Augustine was happy chanting psalms in the monastery, just like many American Christians are happy to come in and sit in a church in the four walls and then go back home and not one thing has changed in their lives. Augustine was happy that way until the people of Hippo re rushed in upon him, picked him up on their shoulders and shouted, Episcopus, Episcopus, or Bishop, our Bishop, and the world was changed. John Calvin planned to spend only one night in what he described as smelly Geneva when he was confronted by the steely eyes of Frenchman Gion Farrell, who said to Calvin, please stay with us here in the work. And Calvin stayed and the world was changed. John Wesley went unwilling to that Moravian prayer chapel one night on Aldersgate Street, and he reported later in his journal that he felt his heart strangely warmed. And John Wesley, the young intellectual, came to a meaningful, heartwarming experience in his relationship with Jesus Christ, and it wasn't long until the whole world was ablaze. They were seized and summoned by God for a work which was bigger than they were. Friends, I, I have to say, Christianity is not about fast, it's not about cheap, and it's not about easy. Our DNA is actually on the side of the ledger, however unpopular. It is about bloody sacrifice, it is about costly self-denial, and praise God, it is about profound transformation. What we've learned is that Jesus matters. He matters in our lives, and he'll matter in the lives of others. Our gospel is good news. It's hope for the world. We're also looking for that city whose maker and builder is God. We live in a solitary world and embrace both our brothers from the past and our brothers and sisters for the future. We await the new creation, the consummation of the age. Friends, the floor beneath our feet may be creaking. The familiar supporting post may have fallen away, but the following of Jesus Christ and authentic discipleship goes on. And God is at work in our world, and God is at work in our lives, and God is calling us up to a greater cause and purpose. That's my call to us today is let's get to work. Let's get to work. Let's get to work. We stand on the shoulders of great men and women who have given their lives as living sacrifices for this cause. And we are a link in the chain to hand off to the next generation this same cause worth living for, worth dying for. What in the world is God doing? He's doing a lot. Where is he doing it? In more places than ever before. Wonderful. Who is yet to be reached? We can identify some of those people like the peoples of Central Asia, Kazakhstan, who haven't had the gospel preached to them since the 4th century. We're there. We're preaching the gospel where it's never been heard. How can we be involved? We will find more and more ways to do so. One way we can do it is by simple support of the missions that God has given us here in our local church. You've been thinking and praying about your promise to faith, promise missions. 
You can see on the back of this card the things we'll support in 2014. As we sing our closing song today, would you just fill this out if you haven't? Tear this top portion off and uh, drop, it in, drop it in the buckets as they go by at the end. We are just one little piece of a great big puzzle that God is putting together. One of these days, friends, I just want to be, I want to be able to stand before Jesus with you because my hunches will all be there together. I want to stand with Jesus before him with you and say, Lord, here are the people you ask us to reach. We did our part. We fulfilled the mission you gave us. And to your glory, we lay all of our trophies at your feet and we'll crown him Lord of all. See, in the first century, what was happening is this transition between the Jewish notion of a Christian faith, which was Jesus as Messiah, and we know Jesus is Messiah, and the Jews should embrace him as Messiah. But we're Gentiles, and what was happening is slowly Jesus was, was known as Messiah, and slowly but surely he was becoming Jesus as Lord. And today we know Jesus is Messiah, but most importantly for the whole earth, Jesus is Lord, and we worship him as such. Well, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit's saying to the church. May we be encouraged to follow him boldly and passionately in these days. Amen? All right, let's pray for a moment. Lord, we thank you for your uh, word and for this wonderful day in which we live. It's stunningly wonderful that we live in a day when you are at work in such profound ways. These are the days that your saints prayed for. These are the days that so many have longed to see and we are privileged to be alive in, so, in this moment. We're so thankful, so grateful. Now, Lord, I pray for us. Lord, help us to see the world clearly. Help us to understand our role in it. Help us to understand the expectations given to us as your followers in this place and this time. Lord, I pray that you would help us to embrace the call to sacrifice, self-denial, transformation that you would make us a people that live with integrity a measure of holiness help us oh God to reflect Jesus authentically so we pray your blessing upon us in Jesus name and the people said would you stand with us as we sing